I'm going to read the rest of um, Psalm 33 as our scripture for this morning. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our hope is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, well, good morning, y'all. Good to see you. Um, happy Sunday after Thanksgiving. I uh, hope you all have recovered from your caloric marathon. Uh, it was a lovely, lovely time, I'm sure. Uh, and I asked this in, in uh, the 930 service, who here has deep fried turkey for Thanksgiving? Does anybody have deep fried turkey? Okay, good, good, the Langfords, good, good, good. If you haven't had it, you have not lived. Let me just tell you, it is a scientific fact. It's delicious. Uh, we have that as our family. It's a good tradition that we have. And so uh, hopefully you enjoyed your boring turkeys at home. But, uh, but yeah, hopefully you did have a good Thanksgiving. Um, well, as, um, as we jump into our text this morning, uh, I wanted to begin by letting us know we're, we're beginning the season of Advent, uh, which is the time where the church kind of focuses our attention on this narrative, the story of God entering our world. Uh, and, and, and before we jump into our text and kind of explore this theme uh, of Advent, of hope this morning, I wanted to share a little bit of a, a research study I came across. It was kind of interesting. Uh, basically, um, the, the Museum of Science and Industry, they conducted a study um, with 12,000 people. They listened to over 1,000 songs uh, ranging from the 1940s to modern day to try to determine scientifically what is the catchiest, most memorable song of all time. And, and so they tried to figure this out, and you'd think, I mean, is it, is it a Michael Jackson tune? Is it an Elvis Presley tune? Is it the theme from Barney? Like, what is it? And the most memorable song, according to science, is in fact this. I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop. I don't want to dance too much. I don't want to show you all up here. But uh, yeah, so, and that song is, who is that by? Yes, for those who can admit it, uh, that is, it's the Spice Girls. That is the most memorable song according to science. Uh, and and the, the reason I share this, I mean, we all get songs stuck in our head whether we want to or not, and probably a fourth of you are not going to be able to pay attention to anything I say because that song is going to be stuck in your head. But, but we do, we get songs stuck in our head whether we realize it or not, whether we want them or not. Uh, just recently I was in, in Target with my family and I, I'm literally, like, didn't even realize I was doing this. I'm whistling 
uh, twinkle, twinkle, little star. Like as I'm just going down the aisle, I'm like, what am I doing? How long have I been doing this? Where am I? You know, and so we just all get these songs stuck in our head. And the question is, is do we get the right kinds of songs stuck in our head? That's, that's the real important question. And, and, and the reason I, I share this kind of interesting research study is because as we enter into the season of Advent, uh, as we begin to celebrate uh, this kind of Christmas time, uh, there's something unique about the season of Advent that's uh, apart from other holidays, um, Christmas has music attached to it in, in a unique way that other holidays don't. Um, but the question when we come to Advent, when we come to this season, the question is what songs should we have in our minds and hearts? What are the songs that we need to sustain us? And, and, and throughout church history, uh, the, the church has kind of celebrated the season of Advent uh, through these, the themes of Advent, of, of hope, of peace, of love and joy. And one of the ways the church has done that is through the lighting of the Advent candles, which we have down here, not on the stage. We have all this dry wood, so we thought fire and dry wood is not a good combination. But, but instead of just remembering Advent through the lighting of a candle, we thought, let us remember and enter into these historic themes through songs. And, and, and again, the question is, what songs do we need for these themes to be enriched and deepened in our minds and hearts and what I would suggest is we don't need Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. We, we don't even need good Christmas hymns. We need the songs that have sustained God's people for years and years and years. And so what we need are the Psalms. And so this year during Advent, we're going to be in the Psalms looking at these historic themes of hope, love, joy, and peace. And this morning we turn to Psalm 33 as we explore the first theme of Advent, the theme of hope. And, and, and if, you're, if you're like me, I mean, the, the, the word hope, you hear these words, hope, love, joy, peace, like they just kind of sound like greeting card words, like they're nice, they're warm and fuzzy, but there's not a lot of depth or substance to them. What do we mean by hope? What do we mean by love and joy and peace? And, and, and like when we hear someone say like, I hope the Chiefs win today, I mean, is that the same kind of hope that the guy who says, I, I hope she says yes when I propose? Like, is, are, we, are, we, are we using the same words and the same meanings? Uh, and, and I think in our day, hope feels like a, 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 ra a rather fragile thing. I mean, especially as you think about there's so many things to be hopeless about in our world. As we consider so many factors in our, in our individual lives, in our nation, in our world, there's a lot to be hopeless about. And so the question is, what do we mean by hope? And, and, and we, we sense this hopelessness in, in the songs we sing, in the movies we watch, the books we read. There's countless examples, and, and one that, that kind of came to mind, I was reminded of the book Cat's Cradle by Kurt Vonnegut, I remember reading in college. And in that book, Vonnegut had created this fictitious religion called Bokanonism. And it was based on the fictitious writings of Bokanon. And, and in the 14th book of Bokanon, uh, that, that book is entitled, What Can a Thoughtful Man Hope for Mankind on Earth, Given the Experience of the Past Million Years? So that's the title of the book. The book had one verse. The verse had one word. And that word was nothing. There is nothing that man can hope in based on what has taken place throughout history. And, and there's probably a sense in which we kind of nod in a little bit of agreement with Vonnegut and saying, yeah, I mean, considering what is going on in our world, what's going on in our lives, there is a lot to be hopeless about. There's not much to be hopeful in. And so what do we mean when we talk about this idea of hope? Do we hope for things? Do we hope in things? What's the difference? And what I want to suggest is that in some sense, I think Vonnegut is right that there isn't much to hope in. 
How do we understand hope as apart from wishful thinking? And what I want to suggest in our time this morning is that hope is ridiculous unless it's in God. That hope is ridiculous unless it's in God. And I realize that may sound kind of radical. It may even sound offensive to some of us who might not believe in God or not sure what we believe. But, but is this true? I mean, if hope is real, if hope is going to be more than just a gamble on a gut instinct and more than just wishful thinking, hope must be greater than the causes of our hopelessness in this world. And the question is, what are our options for that kind of hope? So this morning, as we look at this, we're going to be looking at Psalm 33 and seeing how the psalmist displays and kind of builds this case for hope and what hope is to be rooted in. But before we do, I just want to pray for our time together uh, as we open God's word and turn to the psalms. Uh, So let's pray. Father in heaven, we pause to to ask that, Lord, that that what we, we do not have that you would give us, that what we do not know you would teach us what we do not see that you would show us um, through your word. Lord, we ask for your spirit to enlighten us, to, to give us an understanding that we might truly understand what it means to hope and to find hope in a hopeless world. So Lord, may this time in your word be encouraging to us and honoring to you. We pray this in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. So hope is ridiculous unless it's in God. And, and what I want to do first to, to kind of get to that point is first kind of show that, that first hope is ridiculous if without a good reason. You see, because like I said, we tend to think of hope as just wishful thinking, of something I want, I'm, I'm hoping that something pans out in this way, but you really don't have any good reason for that hope. And so the first thing here is that hope is ridiculous without a good reason. And in a story from, from my life, when I was a, a freshman in high school, I remember it was the first time I asked a girl to a dance and uh, her name was Lindsay, and uh, I took Lindsay to the Old Settlers Parade, because you know, I grew up in Olathe, so very romantic, you know, spare no expense. And so I bought her tickets to go on all the rides. You know, I, I don't know if they still have like the bracelet where you can ride any ride until you throw up, essentially. That's what I did for her. And so we're riding the rides. I bought her nachos. Very romantic again. I know what I'm doing. And then I, I won a stuffed animal for her, and I knew that frogs were her favorite animal, and so I got this stuffed frog for her. And then I waited until we're on the Ferris wheel. And the Ferris wheel, you know, you're riding, and then you know how it stops to let people on and off. So we're at the top, and I ask her to go to homecoming with me. And she said, no. <laughs> and it was really awkward, because now we're just stuck up here, like, oh, oh, uh, well, I'll take my frog back, and, and then uh, what, do I, what do I do? And so she said no, and, and I really had no reason to hope in the fact that she would say yes. I mean, I, just, I was just confident, like, hey, I got her nachos and a stuffed frog. What more do you want, woman? And so, but she said no to me. I didn't go to homecoming with her, or said, but I met my wife, so it ended up being okay. But um, I had no reason that, that she would actually say yes. I didn't have any assurance. I didn't know how she felt towards me. I was hoping for a circumstance. I was hoping for an outcome, a situation. I didn't really have hope in something foundational, reasonable, rational. There's a difference between hoping for something and hoping in something. Let me illustrate it with, with another story from history. This is a story I remember hearing uh, or reading in, in um, Jim Collins' book, Good to Great. There's an interview he had with uh, Admiral Jim Stockdale, who was actually a prisoner of war uh, during the Vietnam War. And, and he was a prisoner of war for eight years. And in this interview, uh, Stockdale said this. He says, I never lost faith or hope in the end of the story. I never doubted that I would get out. And then Collins asked Stockdale, he said, who didn't make it out? Who were the ones that, that didn't survive? 
And Stockdale said, oh, that's easy, the, the optimists. The optimists did not make it. And, and Collins asked him what he meant by that, and he said, well, the optimists are the ones in the prison who would say, well, you know, once Christmas comes, then we're, we're going to get out. We're, we're sure going to be out by Christmas. And Christmas would come, and they'd still be there. And they'd say, well, well, but come Easter, we'll, we'll finally be out of here. The war will be over, and we'll be rescued by Easter. Easter would come, and they wouldn't make it. And then, oh, no, it's Thanksgiving. And then Christmas, they just kept waiting until the next holiday, and they eventually died of broken hearts, is what Stockdale said. And see, the, the distinction that Stockdale gives is that, see, the optimists had hope for something. They were hoping for a circumstance, a situation to be played out in accordance with their desires. It wasn't really hope in anything foundational. They had no good reason to hope that they would be out by Christmas. Stockdale knew, although he didn't know the time frame at which he would be released, his confidence, his hope was in the U.S. military and their allies. Even though he didn't know when the victory would take place, his hope was in something, which allowed him to be able to say, look, as, as every holiday comes and passes, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. I, I, you know, my hope is not in a circumstance that I want. My hope is in something more foundational. There's a distinction between hoping for something and hoping in something. And I think that's exactly what the psalmist wants us to see. That if hope is a real thing, if it's more than just this airy, misty feeling and emotion, it must be rooted in something substantial. And it must be rooted in something greater than the sources and causes of our hopelessness. Which again is why I, I think that, that it's fair to say hope is ridiculous unless it's in God. Because what is greater than the causes of our hopelessness. And so as we turn to Psalm 33, what I want us to see is, yes, that I believe that hope is ridiculous without God, and that hope is ridiculous without a good reason. But what the psalmist begins to lay out for us in his kind of argument for hope is that hope is also ridiculous without a sense of history behind it. There must be a sense of past when it comes to our hopeful future. And if you notice in Psalm 33, the psalmist actually doesn't even refer to the word hope until verse 17. And so it's because he's building this case of why we have reason to hope in the midst of a hopeless world. And the reason that, that God makes hope possible is because of his very nature. As you consider, I mean, if God is real, then, then God must be the greatest being in all of existence, there's an old definition of God that says that God is that which nothing else greater can be conceived or imagined. That if you can think of something greater than God, then the thing you just thought of is God. I mean, if, if, there's, if, if there is an actual being that is known as God in our universe, it must be the greatest thing of all. And that's kind of what the psalmist is doing for us. But more than just saying that God is great, you see, the, the psalm begins in verses 1 through 5 with this this preamble of praise, of, of praising God, of singing to God, of using instruments to praise God. And the basis for that praise is what follows in verses 6 through 9. And what the psalmist shows us is that in his kind of Hebrew poetry, he's echoing Genesis 1, where we see God creating all things and not just displaying his power, but displaying the fact that everything in existence is based upon him. And that nothing predates him. Nothing determines who God is. God in and of himself is self-sufficient, independent, and self-existent. And so the psalmist wants us to see this by echoing Genesis 1, as he says in verses 6 through 7. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. 
and by the breath of his mouth all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap, and he puts the deeps in storehouses. So again, the psalmist is, is hearkening back to creation to help us see that everything is in existence because of God. And that because of this history, we have reason to hope in a hopeless world. Because God's existence, it's, it's more than just, or God's creation, it's more than just a display of his power. It's more than just saying, wow, God made everything. He's powerful. Yes, that's true. But there's something about God being creator that tells us something about him that's more than just him being powerful. What we see in Genesis and in this echo of Genesis in Psalm 33 is that God is dependent upon nothing and no one. That his existence, everything about him, is completely predicated on himself and nothing else. He owes his existence, he owes his actions, he owes no explanation to anyone or anything. If you want to learn kind of a fun, fancy theological term, you can throw this out at your next holiday party. Uh, the, the word is aseity. Just, just say it with me. Aseity. Look at that. Good job. Good job. The, what the word really means is just that essentially, it's, the best way to describe it is this, is that, is that there is nothing above God controlling him. There's nothing behind God pushing him. There's nothing in front of God pulling him. Nothing beside God advising him. Nothing beneath God compelling him. If you think about just all the directions, there's nothing above him controlling him, beside him advising him, nothing in front of him pulling him, behind him pushing him, nothing beneath him compelling him. God does all that he desires, and he is not persuaded, empowered, pushed, advised by anyone or anything. He does all that he pleases. That is what we see in creation, and that's what we also see in this echo of Genesis 1 in Psalm 33. What the psalmist is showing us is that at creation, nothing stood in authority over God. God did not ask permission to create what he created. Nothing stood in authority over him, and in fact, everything stood in awe of him, as the psalmist says in verse 8 and 9. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. So who is God? He is the sovereign creator over all things, whose existence, whose will, and whose actions are not determined or defined or persuaded by anyone else. He is completely, entirely, utterly self-sufficient, self-existent, and independent. It's what, what C.S. Lewis, he said it so well in his book, The Problem of Pain. He describes essentially this, this picture of God being completely independent. He says, the relation between creator and creature is, of course, unique and cannot be paralleled by any relations between one creature and another. And this is a great line. God is both further from us and nearer to us than any other being. God is further from us and nearer to us than any other being. He makes, we were made. He is original, we derivative. This is the picture that we need to see of God, that it's not just he created and he's powerful, but it's that all things owe their existence to him. That our breath, our life, our beings, our actions, our emotions, everything about us find its origin in God. And what I think the psalmist is essentially trying to show us is that, that God is the only person in the universe who is able to say, because I said so, and, and mean it and ha not have to explain himself. Okay, like parents, you're not really allowed to say that. God is the only one who is allowed to. So, but that's the picture here. God does not need to explain himself to anyone other than himself. 
If God were on trial, he would swear by himself. There's no greater authority by which he could swear by. But what the psalmist, I think, is also trying to show us is that not only is God's word powerful to create and thus worthy to be praised, God's word is sure and worthy to be hoped in. It's not just that God is worthy to be praised because of his powerful word. It's that his word is sure and can be hoped in. This is the difference between hoping for something, a circumstance to play out in accordance with your desire, and hoping in something. God is the sovereign landlord, so to speak, that we inhabit. We inhabit his world, and we owe all of our existence to him. And it's why the psalmist shows kind of the futility and the silliness, the ridiculousness of placing our hope in anything beneath God. Because if all things owe their existence to God, to place our hope in anything less than him is ridiculous. Especially given the fact that our hope, if it's going to be more than wishful thinking, must be greater than the sources of our hopelessness. Which is why the psalmist goes on to say in verse 16 and 17 that the king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. And by its great might, it cannot rescue. You see, for hope not to be ridiculous, it has to be in God. It has to be in something greater than the sources of our hopelessness. But, but also, more than that, hope must be in God in a way where it's not just a forward-facing posture. I mean, obviously hope has a future orientation to it. You're hoping for something that has not yet happened. But if we fail to see that there is a, a past element to hope, we will actually not be able to hope in the ways in which I believe Scripture is encouraging us to. Hope, yes, does have a forward-facing posture, but it must also look back in order for our hope of the, of the assured future to be established in our hearts and minds. Let me illustrate it this way. When I was younger, we had an old Volvo station wagon. And, and it was one of those station wagons where the back seats, like in the back back, faced the, the back window. So like we would sit, there's nodding heads, you maybe drove them. So you're sitting in the back, staring at the people driving behind you. It was a very awkward position to be in. And, and it was really weird. That's where my little brother and I would drive. And we, or not drive, but we would sit back there looking at people. And here's the thing, even though I didn't know where we were going, I knew exactly how far or how close we were from our home because of where we had been. I, I could tell, oh, we're getting close to home because we just passed Jiffy Lube, we just passed Wendy's, we just passed the school. I know where we are because I know where we've been. In the same way, I think the biblical picture of hope is not just a wishful thinking about the future. It is a, it is a constant looking back at what God has done that gives us an assurance that he will fulfill his promises just as he has done throughout history and throughout our lives. Yes, hope is focused on the future, but if it does not ever look back, hope will just become a wishful thinking. We can hope because God is the creator of all things. And because God is the creator of all things, we can hope in him even in the midst of difficult situations because he has been faithful throughout the seasons of difficulties in our lives. Which is why the psalmist says in verse 10, the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. Regardless of what hopeless powers we might see in our world, we are able to be constant and confident in the hope in God because of what he has done throughout time. And this is not just a, hey, we'll get through this kind of hope. 
This is a hope that actually says, hey, things could actually get really, really bad and really, really ugly to the point of famine and death, as the psalmist goes on to say. But regardless of what happens above the surface, we can be hopeful as we look back and remember who God is and what he's done and being confident in light of that that he will fulfill his promises that he has declared from the beginning. And see, this is the kind of hope that only makes sense if that hope is rooted in something that is greater than the sources of our hopelessness. When we understand that our hope is rooted in the one who is sovereign over solar systems and operating systems, who's, who's sovereign over galaxies and governments, that is the basis for which we can have hope about what is to come in the future. But otherwise, hope really is ridiculous without God. But lastly, I think we would be remiss if we failed to see as well that, that, that hope is ridiculous without a sense of love. That love also is part of this formula. Because as the psalmist is building his case for why we hope and why hope is a rational and reasonable thing and not just wishful thinking, what does he do? He anchors it and he roots it in the loyal, covenantal, promise-keeping nature of God's love. This is the case that he's building, that the ultimate basis for hope is the loyal, steadfast love of the Lord. Look with me at verses 18 and 19. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him and on those who hope in what? In his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. It's the loyal love of God, this, this steadfast love of God, his, his covenantal promise-keeping love that actually serves as the true anchor, the true foundation for hoping in the future. When we understand the depth of God's love towards us and that his love is not based upon how we love in return and how we respond, but it's based upon his nature as a loving, promise-making, promise-keeping God, that serves as the basis of our hope. It's the loyal love of God that is expressed and upheld towards his people that serves as the foundation of this hope. Through famine and even death in this life, his loyal love can never be lost. It can never be exhausted. It can, we can never get to the point where we're done. It is beyond comprehension. One of, my, one of my favorite hymns, just simply called, it's just the love of God. And there's this beautiful verse that just poetically describes the vastness of God's love that we cannot fully comprehend. It says this, it says, Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made, if every stock on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above, it would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. This is, this is the picture of God's love. That this is not just another greeting card emotion that's just hollow and empty. It is an inexhaustible inexplicable, faithful love that God has towards his people that's rooted in his nature. Greater than the power of God to create, greater than the power of God to even reign and rule over all authorities and nations is his love, his loyal love towards his people. And this is what the psalmist anchors his hope in. This is what allows us to, to as, the, as the Apostle Paul says in the New Testament, to hope against hope. That even in the midst of hopelessness, we can continue to hope. Why? Because our God is a God of faithful love. Which is why, again, the psalmist, he concludes, he, he ends in verses 20 through 22, our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him, 
even in the midst of famine, even in the midst of death, our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in you. You see, we're able to hope against hope because God has shown himself to be faithful time and time again. Even even when things appear, or not even appear, even when things are hopeless, when it really, like, that, that's, that's the conclusion we come to. And, and here's the thing, we often think that, that hopelessness is, is actually the poison to hope. Like, I mean, there's so many things to be hopeless about in our world. So many things in our communities, our, our homes, our, our nation, our world. I mean, just, I just feel like every time I turn the television on, there's something that causes and instills hopelessness in me. How can we find hope in a hopeless world? And what's interesting is that rather than hopelessness being the poison to hope, hopelessness actually becomes the catalyst for hope. In a really bizarre, strange, backwards way, hopelessness becomes an opportunity and a pathway for hope to be forged and strengthened and established in our lives. G.K. Chesterton, he said it way better than than I ever would. He, He said this in an interview. He said, hope means hoping when things are hopeless or it is no virtue at all. As long as matters are really hopeful, hope is mere flattery or platitude. It is only when everything is hopeless that hope begins to be strength. And I think this is so important for us to hear. Because like I said, we, we tend to look at hopeless situations and say, well, well, we throw our hands up and well, there's nothing to hope in. But perhaps It's seasons of hopelessness that actually serve as an opportunity for hope to be strengthened and forged in ways that they couldn't elsewhere. And and, and I think in some ways we have to hear this message uniquely now in this season as, I mean, the holiday season, I mean, ironically, it should be a season of hope and joy and love and peace, but but for so many people, it it often is more of a a reminder of, of hopelessness and brokenness in our world. That the holidays are, is where we kind of acutely feel the loss of loved ones who have passed. You know, it, it's, it's at that dinner table, at the Thanksgiving dinner, at the, at the Christmas dinner, where that empty chair sits and it tells us that the world is not how it ought to be because we've lost this person. We, we feel this sense of hopelessness during this time because during this season we're, we're reminded, I mean, it's when finances feel tighter and we, we feel stressed and overwhelmed. Uh, the, the comparison game kind of ramps up as we see people purchasing gifts and their house is decorated more than mine and they've got like, it's synchronized to radio stations and stuff and I just don't match up. Like we feel this sense of comparison more and more during the season and rather than glad tidings of great comfort and joy, we feel a sense of sorrow and despair. And so in some ways, we, we need this message of hope uniquely during this season of Advent that actually brings sometimes more hopelessness than it does hope. And the reason we can hope is because, again, we believe in a God who is greater than the sources of our hopelessness. I mean, what options else, I mean, what else is out there for us? I mean, what, what, what is greater than, than the depravity of humanity? What, what is greater than, than the problems that, that, that plague us individually and collectively? Is it human decency? I mean, is that the thing we're hoping in? Like, I mean, history has kind of shown that's not a real valid place to place our hope. Is it in our financial stability? I mean, we have so many reasons to doubt that. I mean, as we continually find ourselves in, in a nation of great national debt, and as there's a widening gap between the rich and the poor, and greed is overtaking us, there's so many reasons to say that financial stability is not something that we find hope in. In fact, in some ways, it, it brings a greater curse to us. 
Is it, is it our political power? I mean, this last election cycle kind of proved that's not really a great place to find hope. Is it in our health and vitality? Well, not for long. That has a shelf life as well. What is it that we can hope in that's truly greater than the sources of hopelessness in our world? And again, I come back to the question or the statement that, that hope truly is ridiculous unless it's in God. If hope is real, then it must be rooted in something greater than life itself, really. And yet, hope still escapes us. Even, even for those of us who would say we believe in God, we trust in him, we have a reason to have hope, hope still escapes us. And, and perhaps the reason why, the reason why hope escapes me, the reason why I feel a sense of hopelessness during this season, it's perhaps because I don't, we don't look back enough. We don't reflect and remember what God has done in past that gives us a confidence in the hope for the future. Which is why this Advent season, what we want to do as a way to, to really allow these songs to sustain us, the songs of the Psalms, these songs that, that God's people have sung for years and years, we want these songs to be the songs that stick in our head. We want these songs to be the ones that, that comfort us and encourage us and inform us and tell us who we are and who God is. And so throughout Advent, uh, we're going to, we want to encourage us as a church to memorize God's word together, to allow these songs to to encourage us and bless us and comfort us and convict us even. And so each week, we're going to have a, a selection of, of the psalm that we're studying and teaching through that week. And so this week, and, and some of you might have one of these cards underneath your chair. We kind of ran out of the last two services. Uh, it is on our Facebook pages if you want to find that, you can, and we'll have more next week. But this is just a great way. We encourage you as a way for us to be a hopeful people. What we need isn't so much more of a forward-facing posture. We need to look back. We need to remember who God is and what he's done. And so I would encourage you as individuals, as families, to, to memorize God's word and to allow these songs to sustain you as we go through the season of Advent. And, and what, what better way to remember and celebrate and enter into this time of Advent where we remember and celebrate God entering our world through Jesus than to memorize and to sing the songs that Jesus himself sang. I mean, the Psalms, I mean, that's, it's, it's Jesus' hymnal, so to speak. And this is what I want us to remember. I mean, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this so well. He said that Jesus died on the cross with the words from the Psalms on his lips. What better way for us to enter into the season of Advent, of celebrating the reality that God entered into our world, than to remember, to reflect, and to get these songs stuck in our head, the same songs that Jesus sang himself. So we encourage you to do that as we continue on through Advent together. And perhaps as we do that, we will come to see that not only is hope ridiculous, unless it's in God, but we will come to see that hope is ridiculous unless hope is a person. And, and really, that's what the psalmist concludes, that hope is not, our hope is not in a concept, it's not in a victory, it's not even in a, in a future reality, although it is those things. Our hope is first and fundamentally in a person, which is why the psalmist concludes in verse 22, let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. You see, the psalmist was not simply hoping for something or even hoping in something. The psalmist was hoping in someone. And the beautiful thing about this is that, that what the psalmist saw in part, we have the blessing and the opportunity to see in, in a greater clarity that the hope the psalmist had was in the God of Israel, 
And as history goes on, as salvation history is unveiled, what we see is that promise, that hope is not just in the God of Israel, it is most clearly and most beautifully seen in the hope of Jesus. This is why we celebrate Advent. You see, hope becomes a reality and something we can hold on to with confidence as we look back to see that the God of all creation, the God over history, entered into creation and entered into history and became one of us that he might suffer with us and for us. This is what we celebrate in Advent. And when we understand that the God of creation, the God of history, entered into creation, entered into history, we have good reasons we look back to know that we have an assurance of a future reality. Why? Because we have seen God's faithfulness throughout our lives and we have seen it most beautifully and most clearly in the sending of his son to be the display of his steadfast love, of his loyal love that is not dependent upon our behavior and our response but completely dependent upon his nature to love, to make promises and keep promises. This is why hope is more than wishful thinking. This is why hope can be found in a hopeless world. As terrible as things may be in our lives and in our world, we are able to hope, we are able to endure through famine and even death because we have seen our God who is greater than all things and we have seen his steadfast love displayed for us most beautifully in the sending, the advent, the coming, the entrance of his son into our world. And it is in this season as we also remember and await his return where all things will be made new. And so my prayer for all of us this Advent season is that that we will come to see that hope truly is ridiculous unless it's in God. And perhaps we'll come to see that for the first time and to see that there's actually a remedy to the problems that plague us. And that perhaps this Christmas season, this season of Advent will be a time where we will feel a sense of hope that we've never felt before as we look back and see who God is and what he has done, as we remember and celebrate his entrance into our world. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are um, a God of hope. And Lord, we ask that you would, um, that you would help us to look back and to reflect and remember upon your goodness and faithfulness, not only in our own lives, Lord, but in the lives of of our friends and family and neighbors, Lord, and and all throughout history. Lord, may we remember and be reminded that you are a God of steadfast love. And may that serve as the basis of our hope in you as we move forward in this life. And Lord, I recognize that in this room, there are people that, that, that really do feel a great, overwhelming sense of hopelessness. We've turned to so many things to find hope and we we're hoping for things to pan out in ways that we want, Lord. But Lord, would you show us Would you show us graciously and lovingly the foolishness of our ways in hoping in anything less than you? And may we see you as the one who is able to do something about the great causes of hopelessness in our world. Jesus, we thank you for the life you lived and the death you died and the resurrection over the grave that was marked for us and that through that we might find life, hope, peace, joy, and love. We pray this in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen.